Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up, and let's get started on today's podcast. Welcome back to the Leanne Ward Nutrition Podcast. I'm so happy you're here with me today, and I hope that our guest expert today leaves you feeling empowered to nourish and fuel your body and your life. But firstly, I need to start off by thanking our generous sponsor, Protein Supplies Australia. They're an all-natural nutrition company without the crap. At Protein Supplies Australia, they create health-conscious alternatives for those who care about how they fuel their body. All their products are natural, and you'll never find unnecessary additives, artificials, cheap fillers, or hidden ingredients in them. They are all manufactured here in Brisbane, so they're a local company, and if you'd like to support them, please use the podcast discount code, which is LWPODCAST15. So LWPODCAST15 for 15% off the entire Protein Supplies Australia range. Today, we are chatting all things fertility and pregnancy. Our expert guest is Melanie McGrath, an advanced accredited practicing dietitian with a special interest in fertility, pregnancy, and infants. She runs the Nourish with Melanie YouTube channel, the online dietary program, Eight Simple Steps to a Healthy Pregnancy Diet, and is an ambassador for Compassion's Mums and Bubs Nutrition Clinics with the Nutrition Plus team sponsoring one in Tanzania. For more information, please follow Melanie on Instagram. Her handle is at Melanie McGrath. In this podcast, Melanie and I start off by talking about what good nutrition for fertility means and why it's so important. What foods improve the quality of our eggs, foods to avoid when we're trying to conceive, and we hear Melanie's thoughts on seed cycling. We then talk a little about infertility and other things besides nutrition our listeners should be aware of. Why the health and nutrition of males matter as much as females, supplements worth taking when trying to conceive, how to overcome morning sickness, foods to focus on when pregnant, whether protein powders are safe to consume, and how new mums can increase their milk supply. Finally, Melanie shares her wisdom on solids for babies and tips that mums can use when it comes to label reading and baby food. I'm really excited to bring you guys this podcast today, so let's jump straight in now with Melanie. And again, thank you to our wonderful sponsor, Protein Supplies Australia. Welcome, Melanie, to our podcast today. I'm excited to have you on chatting all things nutrition, fertility, and pregnancy. Thank you so much for having me, Leanne. It's always great to chat to you. And you're a true expert in this area, so we're very grateful to have you on today. But I'd love for you to start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you came to working in and specializing in the area of women's health um, and nutrition, fertility, and pregnancy. Yeah, certainly. Um, It's quite a long story, so I'll keep it as short as I can. But essentially, for many years um, working in a hospital, one of my jobs there was working in a weight management clinic. And I would always ask my clients, when did you first start struggling with your weight? And for many women, their answer was after pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Now, I had been uh, a media spokesperson for the Dietitians Association for many years before that. And um, and I wanted to... uh, I wanted to provide a book for these clients and so went around and had a look for one and I couldn't really find anything that uh, I thought was suitable. So I actually did a book proposal to a whole lot of publishing houses 
Didn't hear anything back at the time. But then a couple of years later, I got a call from Pan Macmillan, which is one of Australia's largest publishing houses. And they said to me that they were really interested in my book proposal. So long story short was I uh, wrote a book called The Pregnancy Weight Plan. And, um, and I thought I knew a, a bit about fertility and pregnancy already, but obviously researching for the book takes you into this whole another level of, <laughs> of research which was fantastic for me. And then after that, I got um, more and more speaking opportunities on the topic. And the more that I researched, the more passionate I became about it because what I learned is that it's not just about having a healthy pregnancy, but that there's this time that is now known as the first thousand days. Mm -hmm. So from somewhere preconception and all of the academics and healthcare professionals debate about when exactly it is. Mm -hmm. I like to think of it as three months um, prior to conception. So during conception, during pregnancy and while our little ones are little, um, this first thousand days of life, we can actually uh, modify the genetic programming. So you can't actually change the genes, but you can change the way that it's called epigenetics. You can change the way that these genes are programmed to influence everything from our baby's immune system to their cognitive ability. So how smart they're going to be and how good they are at problem solving and what's their memory going to be like and what's their weight going to be like, which was a big one for me coming from that weight background, um, to the risk of asthma and eczema and all these different things from this first thousand days. And so having learned all that, I'm just really passionate about sharing the importance of seeing a dietitian during this time of life mm-hmm. because not many people do really. They usually only go and see dietitians if there's a real health issue. Mm-hmm. But now knowing that you can actually change your child's whole future through what you eat during this first thousand days Um, I became really passionate about that and that was actually when I was learning all of this was also a time when I was going on my own fertility journey getting into my late 30s at the time um, and not having had a baby yet uh, and having that emotional roller coaster and so when I started working with more and more fertility clients I really had a lot of empathy for their situation and um, and so really um, care very passionately, particularly about helping women who can't conceive to, or couples who can't conceive to be able to have babies. Yeah, wonderful. And I mean, I'm sure we could do a whole entire another podcast on epigenetics alone, but let's start with the (laughs) basics and the foundations first. Why is good nutrition really important for fertility to begin with? Uh, Well, it's important for fertility to be able to get pregnant. Mm -hmm. And then as I was saying, to be able to have that impact on your baby's future health. So you have to remember that the eggs and the sperm are the genetics for your baby. And so even though you haven't conceived yet, that egg and that that sperm, their health is really important. And so from right from the start, you want to be making sure that that egg and that and that sperm is as healthy as possible. Wonderful. So even before we, um, I guess, get to that time where we go, okay, right, let's start making a baby, it counts in the months and the years leading up to that, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, this isn't really my area, but I do always feel sad for younger women and men, but particularly younger women who 
aren't looking after their health and then they get to the point of wanting to be able to have a baby and they realize how much damage they've done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess nutrition wise, what are some foods or what are some nutrition guidelines that can help us to improve our health and the quality of, of our eggs to help improve our chances of fertility? Well, there's a lot, but um, I think two of the biggest factors that I talk about is first of all is um, inflammation. So looking at our fat profile. Mm -hmm. So having lots of those good fats, um, particularly the omega-3 fats, which help to reduce inflammation, that can really help in terms of both improving egg health, but also um, improving the health of your uterus. So when your sperm and your egg join together to become an embryo, and that embryo then needs to implant into the uterus. Um, Some people have problems with that actual implantation, and that could be because they've got too much inflammation around the uterus as well. So um, reducing inflammation is really important, and the best way to do that is through the good fat profile. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing is having a really antioxidant-rich diet. Um, And the reason why that is important is that um, one of the, probably one of the biggest issues with getting pregnant is um, what we call chromosomal damage. Mm -hmm. So again, that genetic material inside our egg um, just, yeah, it it has damage to it. And, um, And so a lot of that damage is from oxidative stress. And so the more antioxidants that we can eat in our diet, so the more colourful diet that we have, Mm -hmm. eating a rainbow, um, the more that that we're going to get those antioxidants into our body, um, reduce that oxidative stress to be able to really look after the genetic material in our eggs. Wonderful. So I guess that good general guideline to healthy eating. And I guess when you talk about inflammation, the first thing that generally pops to my head as a dietitian is things like, you know, smoking and alcohol. So although not um, you know, food related Mm. or nutrition things, um, they would obviously have an impact on like quality of our eggs as well, do they? Oh, absolutely. And that's the thing, like all of those general healthy guidelines that we give about getting enough sleep and um, getting out into the outdoors and doing enough physical activity, all those types of things are all really beneficial for our egg and sperm health as well. Mm -hmm. It's just that when you get to the pointy end of fertility, so um, I often work with clients who have either have some type of dietary condition like um, endometriosis or polycystic ovarian syndrome or uh, Crohn's disease or something along those lines, or our clients who um, are going through IVF and they may have had seven, eight, nine, ten cycles of IVF. Um, so a lot of those clients, we're really looking into the nitty gritty um, of nutrition there. But for all of us, those general healthy eating guidelines are really important. Mm, definitely. And then when thinking about, I guess, food and nutrition, you've mentioned some wonderful things that are going to help improve the health of our eggs. Um, is there anything that we should really be avoiding when we're thinking of, of trying to conceive? Is there any sort of like big no-nos? I know that once you fall pregnant, there's a whole list of foods that you probably shouldn't be eating. But what about just when you're trying? Are there any sort of foods that you recommend avoiding? Yeah. Um, so a- again, most of them do come back to sort of the, what we know about healthy eating because that things like inflammation, they don't just impact upon fertility, but they impact upon so much of having a, a healthy lifestyle. Um, but those types of foods are really important. So uh, reducing alcohol intake, um, avoiding high saturated fat intake from eating you know, too much bacon, for example. Um, having too much sugar in your diet. So those 
common things that, that dietitians are always talking about are really important for fertility as well. Mm-hmm. So again, it comes back to those good, balanced, healthy sort of eating messages, everything in moderation, that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say though, as, like I am definitely a dietitian who does believe in everything in moderation, but if you're getting to that point where you're actually planning to conceive, mm-hmm. um, I'd probably go a little bit more perfectionistic than usual. <laughs> um, so yeah, just really give it your absolute best shot. And because uh, some some people's idea of moderation is a little bit more generous than what mine might be. Yeah, probably <laughs> agree with that as well. <laughs> now, um, I do. I like to do a weekly sort of Q and A on my on my Instagram channel where every Sunday I sort of say, ask me a lot of questions. And I got a question the other day, and it kind of stumped me because nutrition, pregnancy, fertility is not really my area of expertise, which is why I'm very grateful for you for coming on this podcast. And somebody asked me my thoughts on seed cycling, hmm. and I must admit, I went straight to your YouTube channel, put it in, um, and learned a little bit more about seed cycling. So I'd love for you to tell our listeners a little bit more about what it is um, and what your thoughts are and if there's any sort of um, current research around seed cycling for fertility. Yeah. So seed cycling, um, the, I guess the first thing to say about it is that most of it is anecdotal. Mm-hmm. Like there's very, very little research behind it. So although it's something that I don't have any problems with people giving a go because um, it's including lots of healthy foods um, and can only be good, I think. There isn't a whole lot of research behind it, so don't pin your your hopes on that 100%. But essentially it's about eating different types of seeds um, in different phases of your menstrual cycle to help um, encourage you to ovulate at the right time um, and yeah, encourage pregnancy essentially. So um, yeah, it's just eating those right seeds at the right time. Mm-hmm. And coming back to what you mentioned, uh, things that are positive, I guess, to um, fertility and that sort of thing, you've got a lot of those um, healthy anti-inflammatory fats within some of those seeds as well. So as you mentioned, it's not really going to be too dangerous or damaging to our health to do something like that, despite there not being a huge bulk of evidence behind it. Exactly, which is why I think it's, you know, you may as well give it a go because there is so much great evidence about um, the benefit of nuts both for general health, but particularly for fertility as well. Mm-hmm. So there's some um, there's a really interesting research paper that talks about uh, increasing your plant-based proteins to help optimize um, what's called ovulatory infertility. Mm-hmm. So that means that when we don't ovulate on a regular basis, um, that's actually one of the most common reasons for um, women in particular not being able to conceive because then it's harder to time when to have sex and uh, to match up with when you're ovulating. Um, and so um, by yeah, so by ovulating regularly, that can help with your fertility. And this um, actual research showed that women who have more plant-based proteins in their diet, so 25 grams extra a day, actually improved, like doubled the amount of people who were able to conceive um, within the given time frame. So uh, like seeds are a great thing to do for fertility. 
Wonderful. And the minute I think of like plant-based proteins as well, I think of like increased satiety and fullness and more fiber in the diet. Like it's only going to be a positive thing, isn't it? It's going to help to influence our gut health, help in turn with, um, you know, immune system fertility. And then that also leads me, I guess, to my next thought. Um, When you mentioned that one of your specialty areas um, early on in your career was really around like women's um, weight management. Mm -hmm. How does uh, weight management and fertility fit together? Um, Is it something that can definitely impact on trying to conceive? Yes, very much so. And like I said, that's kind of how I got into this area in the first place. Um, and in both ways. So having your weight too low mm-hmm. or having your weight too high can both have an impact on A, um, whether or not you ovulate and B, how frequently you ovulate. Um, so as we were just saying, ovulating really regularly um has a big impact upon your fertility. In fact, uh, the research suggests that around 30% of infertility is caused by people not ovulating um, on, a, on a regular basis or women not ovulating on a regular basis. So um, having a healthy weight is something that can really make a very big difference there. One um, interesting fact that your listeners might like to know, though, is we usually talk about a healthy BMI being from around 18.5 to about 25. Mm -hmm. When it comes to fertility, we tend to move the bar up a little bit. So um, often the healthy BMI tends to be more like 20 to 29. Um, You actually want to be a little bit more on the nourished side uh, when it comes to conceiving. Wonderful. And that's good to know as well, because I think um, sometimes with social media and just um, the way that, um, you know, images are portrayed on social media, it's like having a six pack and abs is the normal and people walk around sort of thinking that um, a six pack is the epitome of health. But when it comes to like pregnancy and fertility, that's definitely not the case. It's actually, I like how you put it better to be a little bit more nourished than it is to be on that super lean side. Um, you probably got better chances to um, having a little bit of extra um nourishment on board (laughs) yeah there's a syndrome um called the um let's go a few different names but it's often called the athletes triad yeah um where uh women who particularly those who exercise a lot uh can stop then getting their periods Mm -hmm. and stop ovulating as well um and have and that uh, decrease in estrogen actually goes on to impact their bone health as well and that's where you do have to be a little bit careful of that over-exercising, not having enough calories for the amount of physical activity that you're doing as well and can it really have that big impact on your fertility. Definitely, yeah. And for our listeners at home, we have talked a little bit or quite extensively about this on the podcast with some sports dietitians. Um, the athlete triad syndrome is also known as the Redis syndrome as well, or as you mentioned, a few different names. So um, definitely a good thing to, I guess, keep in the back of your mind. So I guess we've talked about um, infertility. We've talked about some nutrition things to avoid, alcohol, smoking, um, being super lean. Is there anything else that you think is important for our listeners to be aware about in terms of infertility or, or difficulties trying to conceive? Um, I think that if somebody has some type of dietary condition, mm-hmm. um, so as I was saying earlier about like if you've got celiac disease or diabetes or endometriosis, polycystic ovarian syndrome, something along those lines, um, I'd highly, highly encourage you to go and see a fertility dietitian when you are at that point where you're thinking about um, getting pregnant. Uh, don't necessarily wait for a doctor to refer you because they don't always Mm -hmm. Um, and often 
you very quickly go down the medical pathway of um, medications and IVF. Not that there's anything wrong with medications and IVF. Obviously, I work with clients who are using them all the time Mm -hmm. um, and there are many clients who need them. But there are also many clients who don't need them and there's a lot that a dietitian can do before you get to that stage. Definitely. I love it. Yeah, I'm a big fan of holistic health and I love to think that dietitians, we use food as medicine and we use food to help heal as well. So there's so much that we can do just from simple little tweaks to our um, eating and daily food routines, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. Huge. And particularly when it comes to fertility. Yeah. Wonderful. Now I know it takes two to tango when it comes to creating a baby. So a lot of people really just focus on, you know, the female or the mother, but what does the health of, um, I guess the male or the nutrition of the sperm, how does that impact fertility as well? Do males need to sort of step up to the plate and take care of their health as well when it, when it comes to creating a baby? Absolutely. So when it comes to infertility, the stats tend to be that 30% of infertility is related to women's health, Mm -hmm. Um, 30% is related to a man's health, another 30% is related to both, Um, and then 10% is unknown. Mm -hmm. So, you know, men's health certainly has a big role when it comes to infertility. Mm -hmm. And again, uh, nutrition and lifestyle has a huge impact on the health of sperm. And not only about whether you're going to be able to conceive or not, but also, again, those epigenetics. So um, one of the most interesting things, particularly from a weight perspective, is that the emerging research at the moment suggests that a man's weight prior to conception probably even has a bigger impact on the baby's future weight than mom's does either prior to conception or during pregnancy. Mm. So guys... You got to get into a healthy weight uh, before trying to conceive, is what I would recommend. And ladies, bring your fella along to the dietitian appointment as well. <laughs> Takes two to tango. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and again, that oxidative stress has a really big impact upon sperm health. Mm-hmm. So we, uh, I often joke that. Uh, Women have to go for nine months during their pregnancy without alcohol. So guys should go for nine months um, without alcohol before (laughs) conceiving. Fair is fair. (laughs) That's right. Exactly. So, yeah, it is a really good time for men to um, optimize their nutrition though. Wonderful. And even just in terms of their general health as well um, is always important as well. I feel like so many people, we get so stuck down in the hustle and bustle everyday life that we just tend to put off our health and put off our health and be like, I'll start next year, next New Year's resolutions. And before we know it, we're like 50 and we're like, oh my goodness, what's happened to my health? Like I hear that time and time again for clients. So a good reminder for everybody to start young and even if you're not thinking about conceiving for a few years time, it is still a good idea to optimize your your health for future pregnancies, but also for general health as well. Yeah. It's amazing how often I see clients and, and they're who can't conceive and they're carrying so much guilt about their younger partying years mm. because there's so much that they could have done earlier but just push it aside. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. And then any, I guess, I know we're always a food first, um, as dietitians, we love to use food as medicine first, but are there any supplements that you would recommend or feel that are worth mentioning in terms of, um, helping those trying to conceive? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I would reiterate that, that I am food first, Mm -hmm. but when it does come to trying to conceive, um, I actually am a very big fan of supplements. Mm -hmm. Um, so the first and most common is 
folic acid Mm -hmm. and you do want to be taking folic acid for different uh, guidelines will give different recommendations but anywhere from sort of one to three months before conception Um, again it won't hurt you to start earlier but the key thing to know about folic acid is that different women need different amounts of folic acid so the standard guidelines recommend 400 micrograms but there's heaps of exceptions to the rule Um, so for example if you have diabetes if you're in the overweight category, if you have a family member who has um, had some type of neural tube defect, um, if you have celiac disease or some type of malabsorptive condition, like the list goes on and on and on for people who actually need higher amounts of folic acid. So I'd highly recommend, um, like it's a really good starting place to be asking your dietitian about how much folic acid do I need and what type of folic acid do I need as well. Because there's actually a lot of different types of folate um, available, and it does get quite confusing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and that in and of itself can make a really big difference um, to your baby's future health. Mm. So that's probably the most important nutrient. But also before you conceive, um, I'd highly recommend getting a blood test from your GP to have a look at your nutritional profile. See if your vitamin D levels are low, for example, mm-hmm. um, or if your iron um, stores are low and you really want to get all of them optimized before getting pregnant. So, for example, with iron, yes, you can take iron supplements during pregnancy, but they can actually increase your risk of developing gestational diabetes during pregnancy. Um, so, and when during pregnancy, um, a lot of women really struggle with constipation because your progesterone levels increase, and then you've also got a baby sitting on your bowel, yeah. <laughs> um, and for a whole lot of other reasons. Um, so, iron supplements make that uh, so much worse as well. So, things like that, um, if you can get those nutrients optimized before getting pregnant, mm-hmm. it will make the world of difference. Yeah, yeah. Couldn't agree more with the iron. I often have a lot of people reaching out to me saying, you know, I'm going through pregnancy, I'm taking these iron tablets, I'm so constipated, what do I do? So, I would definitely agree with that um, to try and optimize that before. And as you were talking about um, in the beginning around um, the omega 3s and the anti inflammatories, say if somebody just didn't like seafood, didn't like fish, or was following more of like a plant based lifestyle, um, and, you know, they're occasionally throwing stuff like chia seeds on, you know, they just weren't achieving the sort of amounts of omega-3s that we would really like. Would you be a fan of then obviously using um, someone like a dietitian to guide that advice, but doing something like some fish oil supplements or some flaxseed oil supplements? Yeah, very much so. Um, yeah, I would highly recommend that. Like, obviously, I would prefer that people had fish, but if for whatever reason they, they can't have fish or can't have enough fish, or choose not to, mm-hmm. um, then yes, I would definitely be recommending um, some type of omega-3 uh, supplementation. Um, and then when for women who are a little bit older, um, so if they're over the age of 35 um, or, again, they're going through some type of fertility treatments, um, I would actually recommend looking, again, speaking, getting some personalised advice but speaking to your dietitian about different types of antioxidants as well. So things like um, coenzyme Q10 mm-hmm. um, and melatonin supplements, uh, things like that um, can really make a difference in reducing that oxidative damage of uh, egg health. And it becomes important for women as we do get older because the older we get, the more uh, 
the greater risk we have of oxidative damage and therefore the greater risk we have of having a baby with health problems. Mm, yeah. Great advice. Now, um, I remember when I used to work at the hospital as a clinical dietitian, often we'd get um, admissions of, you know, females, even just for a couple of days with really severe morning sickness. And I remember just thinking like, even just the simplest tweaks to their nutrition, like instead of having um, warm foods, like cold, wet, dry foods seem to make all the difference in terms of morning sickness. So I'm sure that you get quite a lot of referrals for women who just experience. And I had a good friend of mine who had morning sickness morning all through night, the entire nine months. And the minute she gave birth, it, it went away like magic and she really suffered the, the whole pregnancy so do you have any tips for our listeners at home if they are experiencing quite severe morning sickness or it's something that just doesn't seem to last in the morning but it's also there at night time and in the afternoon as well yeah so um first of all if it is just nausea and you're just feeling yuck um there are a huge range of different tips um and you can find some on my youtube channel which is nourish with melanie Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, I've also got on there a how to make ginger tea, which can be a great little hack for morning sickness. Um, but some of the things that you might like, like one of my favorite tips is just cutting up some type of citrus. So some lemon or some orange and just keeping it in a little Ziploc bag. And then whenever you're feeling a bit sick, just to open the Ziploc bag and have a smell because our smell has a really big impact upon your feeling of nausea and can. And that one little hack alone can make a world of difference um, in important times. But what I would say is that if somebody is actually uh, at the point where they are vomiting and Mm -hmm. they're not able to eat the nutritious diet that they know that they should be or they want to be eating during pregnancy, Mm -hmm. it's a really good idea to be speaking to a prenatal dietitian because you. Like there's a lot that dietitians can help you to modify uh, your dietary intake, like all sorts of little tips that we can do. And that tends to be tailored for each individual. So where one person can tolerate food in the morning, but they can't in the evening or um, they can't tolerate their nutritional supplements so that we need to put them onto liquid supplements or, you know, some people can tolerate some foods and not others like just everyone is so different and so Mm -hmm. that's where you may need some additional nutritional supplementation um and we may need to do some really individual dietary changes to suit your needs yeah definitely and it's funny that you mentioned ginger because i know that there is quite a lot of like research behind ginger and nausea and that sort of thing and it just reminds me of when we were kids we used to go on long car trips as a family and mum used to always my sister and i used to get car sickness and motion sickness and she used to give us this like chocolate covered ginger and i just (laughs) hate ginger i've never been able to have the taste of ginger and i used to like suck the chocolate off and then like toss the ginger out the window and i'd end up throwing up like nine times out of ten and mum's like could you you eat the ginger I'm like yeah yeah no I, I ate the ginger it didn't work it didn't work <laughs> but I could just never get it down what you were saying is actually quite right because ginger doesn't help uh, vomiting it only helps with nausea ah. yeah so uh yeah if you are at that point of vomiting <laughs> yeah don't worry about too late yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right that's where you need the much stronger medication yeah definitely yeah, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to our healthy break, where I take 30 seconds out of the podcast to tell you about our fabulous sponsor, Protein Supplies Australia, as without them, you wouldn't get to listen to this podcast for free. Our generous sponsor, Protein Supplies Australia, are all about natural nutrition without the crap. They create health-conscious alternatives for those who care about how they fuel their bodies. Their products are completely natural, and you'll never find unnecessary additives, artificials, cheap fillers, or hidden ingredients in them. 
They are all manufactured here in Brisbane, so they're a local company who I absolutely love for a little assistance with my training and nutrition when needed. I personally use their plant-based and WPI protein powders, their BCAAs, and also their creatine when I'm trying to get some gains in the gym and grow some lean muscle mass. If you'd like to support Protein Supplies Australia, please use the podcast discount code LWPODCAST15 for 15% off the entire range, and we'll link the website and the discount code in the show notes as well. Thank you for tuning into this healthy break. Now let's get straight back to our podcast. All right. Well, moving from, I guess, the um, trying to have a baby into the we're very lucky, we're able to have a baby, we're finally pregnant. What sort of foods should mums and maybe dads as well be focusing on in particular? Obviously, a healthy, nourishing diet is important, but are there any particular foods mums um, should be focusing on when they are pregnant? Um, Well, one thing that might be interesting to your listeners is the impact of um, our diet and supplements on risk of uh, eczema and allergies. Mm. So um, if you or your partner um, have a family history of eczema or food allergies or asthma, um, then that significantly increases your baby's risk of um, of developing eczema, asthma or food allergies. Um, and although it does have a genetic component it also has an epigenetic component so what you eat during pregnancy can actually influence your baby's risk um, so there's a couple of things that we want to do so first of all um, we want to be making sure that you are actually eating allergens on a regular basis throughout pregnancy mm-hmm. and a lot of people um because this re- this information has actually changed in the last decade. So they used to say avoid allergens, um, whereas now the current research is to eat them. Um, And you want to be having them around about twice a week during pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's to build up your baby's immune tolerance to them. So the most common allergens are um, things like peanut um, and then other tree nuts and legumes, uh, soy, dairy, wheat, um, seafood, fish, Mm -hmm. and eggs. So, yeah, it's really important to be eating those foods during pregnancy. Um, And then on top of that, again, we're talking about omega-3 before, but um, there's research to suggest that omega-3 can also help to reduce the risk of that. that, uh, It's also a little bit of a triad, but uh, eczema, asthma, and food allergies. Um, So, again, it's another really important reason to be eating fish throughout pregnancy. And it's interesting because when you look at um, the population studies of what women eat during pregnancy, um, there's a significant decrease of women eating fish during pregnancy and, and already many Australians don't eat enough fish, um, but during pregnancy it decreases when in fact it actually should increase because fish are so important. Mm. Um, you just have to be careful of eating too much, obviously, mm-hmm. so that you don't get mercury toxicity and you have to make sure it's properly cooked because of listeria. Yes. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that you need to stop fish altogether. It's actually really, really important food for pregnancy. Yeah, wonderful. And a really nourishing source of nutrition as well and much more benefits as well, protein, everything. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, again, um, on um, the pregnancy train of thought, um, I get asked a lot about protein powders, particularly because I work with, you know, quite active females, um, sort of like 
not, I wouldn't say professional athletes, but sort of people who take their sports very seriously. A lot of times they will use protein powders to just boost up their nutrition or if they have decreased appetites after training, that sort of thing, they'll blend up a smoothie with some protein powder in it. What are the current recommendations around protein powders and pregnancy? Because I noticed that when I do pick up a lot of protein powders, it does say not suitable for pregnancy and breastfeeding. But then I have seen a couple of brands that actually do say suitable for pregnancy and breastfeeding. So is it a particular ingredient or is it based on the amount that someone might have or? Both actually. So first of all, yeah, when it comes to protein during pregnancy, a lot of people think that you need heaps of extra protein during pregnancy and you don't. Mm -hmm. You need a lot of extra carbohydrates during pregnancy, but not so much protein. Mm -hmm. Your protein requirements increase a tiny bit, but it, it really is only a tiny bit. And most people are actually already meeting their protein, like their pregnancy protein requirements. Yeah. Um, so again, interestingly, and this is more so once you've had your baby, but um, the a lot of the infant formulas have actually changed over the last, I'd say over the last decade, but particularly over the last few years, to reduce the amount of protein in them because there's been research that shows that too much protein uh, for babies actually increases the risk of them developing obesity down the track. So we don't want too much protein um, in pregnancy and those early stages of, of life. Um, it's about getting the right amount, not too little, not too much. Um, secondly is uh, with protein powders, uh, we need to be careful of um, ketosis. So we don't want to be having a very low carbohydrate diet in most cases during pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Now, there are a few people, um, including a few academics and healthcare professionals, who are starting to um, debate that. Um, but what I would say is that there's pretty solid evidence why you shouldn't have a low-carb diet during pregnancy. And so if you are going to choose to follow a low-carb diet during pregnancy, you just want to make sure that you're being monitored really closely by um, your healthcare team, so including mm-hmm. a dietitian, uh, so that you're meeting all of your nutritional requirements for your baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third thing is that a lot of protein powders contain additional nutritional supplements. And we have to remember that when it comes to taking supplements, that they can compete against each other. So, for example, um, iron and copper both compete for the same receptors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you're taking a protein powder that um, that contains copper, for example, that might actually uh, reduce your your ability to absorb zinc um, and so forth and so forth. So that's where you do have to be careful of taking something like protein powders during pregnancy um, when you're already taking other nutritional supplements like your prenatal supplements mm. and, uh, yeah, can be can be problematic there. So there's quite a few reasons. Um, mm. And I think the best thing is, again, to like pregnancy is a really great time to be getting that personally tailored advice from a dietitian. So, yeah, just if you're somebody who does take protein powder, um, ask your dietitian and get them to have a look at exactly what brand you're taking and see if it's right for you or not. Mm. And I guess a, a friend of mine comes to mind here because she was following very much like a vegan lifestyle. She had been for many years, ethical reasons, um, and she just really wasn't even um, just cooking simple things like 
um, tofu and legumes and that sort of thing was just really turning her off during pregnancy. So she Mm. turned to a little bit of a protein powder. And I do remember doing some research around vegan-based protein powders. And correct me if I'm wrong, but some of the concerns around um, protein powders in pregnancy were also around like um, she was using like a brown rice type protein powder. And it was where like the rice was grown um, and some of the heavy metals in the soil and in the earth as well. So some of that heavy metal contamination, particularly if it's not listed where that protein or where that route Uh, where the rice had come from. You know, if it's from Australia, generally we don't use too many heavy metals and that sort of thing. But if it's something out of China, um, to pick a random country or somewhere overseas or something, you're kind of not really sure what goes on in in the earth and in the soil. Is that, again, another concern as to why we wouldn't be recommending tons of protein powders and that sort of thing in pregnancy? That is definitely another reason. Um, Also, uh, particular things like if you're having a soy uh, based protein powder. Um, we have to remember that soy contains phytoestrogens, um, which can have an impact on your estrogen levels during pregnancy. Um, so there's, yeah, there's multiple reasons why it's something that you need to be really careful of. Mm. And then I guess that would also extend to breastfeeding. I guess um, when we think about, you know, a lot of new mums feel a lot of pressure to try and drop the weight, you know, as soon as they have the baby. And a lot of people have just almost been conditioned by social media to think that protein powder helps with weight loss. Whereas we know that you can definitely eat real foods and still drop some weight and, and, you know, having a baby, you don't want to be focusing on your weight. But again, the more you tell people that, the more, um, you know, they just seem to sort of want to do that regardless. And so protein powders and breastfeeding, is it sort of similar research? Like you're definitely still not recommending it. Even once you've you've finished the pregnancy and you've had the baby, is it still not recommended to have protein powders while you're breastfeeding as well? Yeah, absolutely. For all those same reasons. Um, And when it comes to losing weight after pregnancy, um, so first of all, breastfeeding is the best for, mm-hmm. uh, like it's the best weight loss post-pregnancy. Um, and, but you really don't want to be losing any more than half a kilogram a week, uh, particularly while you're, well, yeah, while you're breastfeeding, um, because then that can actually dry up your breast milk, which you don't want to be doing. So, um, yeah, aim for that half a kilo a week and you can, the best way to do that is through diet and, and exercise. Um, and then once you've finished breastfeeding, then you can look at um, some quick weight loss strategies if that's what you want to do. But yeah, just wait until you finish breastfeeding and, and don't hurry to finish breastfeeding because you want to lose weight because there is so much benefit for both you and your baby of breastfeeding. Mm, definitely. And uh, one of the focuses of the podcast is really around gut health as well. And we know that human breast milk is a natural prebiotic, which is one of the best things that you can give your baby in terms of um, benefits of gut health early on, which again is going to help with things like allergies, obesity, um, immunity, all that sort of things in the future as well. Yeah. So definitely a big fan of breastfeeding. <laughs> Um, Now, following that trail of thought as well, a lot of women do struggle with milk supply, particularly early on, um, latching that sort of thing. So are there any foods? I know I've seen those like lactation cookies and that sort of (laughs) thing. Is there any actual, I guess, like evidence um, for those things or any foods that can naturally help to increase our milk supply? You mentioned a good tip, actually trying to eat enough and nourish your body and not drop your calories too low is going to be very helpful for milk supply. Any foods in particular um, that also help or do those cookies have any weight behind them (laughs) besides tasting good, I'm sure? (laughs) That's like everyone who becomes pregnant. uh, That's one of the most common questions I get. Which brand of lactation cookie should I take? (laughs) Um, And so 
what lactation cookies are is that they're cookies that have what are called galactagogues in them. Mm-hmm. Um, so a galactagogue is a nutrient or a medication that helps to increase your breast milk supply. Um, and when it comes to nutrients, there's actually very little research on them. Um, and uh, the, the the nutrients that do have the research on them, um, things like fenugreek um, and dates, yes, you'll find them in lactation cookies, but, but uh, there's a whole lot of things in lactation cookies that there is no research on at all. And uh, I think most of the time they're just a good excuse for a little bit of a cookie pick-me-up when you're <laughs> exhausted from breastfeeding. So, um Again, the biggest thing um, is about how you are breastfeeding and about eating really healthily whilst breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. Um, and so eating really regularly throughout the day, probably one of the biggest things that is so often overlooked is drinking enough water. Like over 90% of breast milk is water and you get so dehydrated when you're breastfeeding um, and not drinking enough water can have a really big impact upon your milk supply. So that would be a, just a really practical tip, um, and you'll get way better results from drinking more water than you will be than you will from eating lactation cookies. Um, so I'd very much encourage that. <laughs> and again, I'm going to follow up with that because again, people always say to me, "How much water should I be drinking? Eight cups a day?" And that's sort of this magical myth that sort of is based on the average person. But you know, who is actually average? Like, what does the average person look like? So when it comes to knowing if you're drinking enough, if you're a mum that's breastfeeding, generally I say to my clients, um, use the color of your urine as a good indication of if you're hydrated or not. If you're waking up and your first pee is dark brown or it's really yellow, you're probably not drinking enough. Would that be applicable for breastfeeding as well is that probably the best indication to tell whether or not a breastfeeding mum is well hydrated or is it really just that thirst factor yeah no looking at your urine um, can certainly be a really good indication the only problem is that a lot of supplements can actually change the color of your urine as well so Mm. when you are taking your prenatal or breastfeeding supplements um, it can have an impact um, yeah, so usually I recommend at least an extra liter on top of what you would usually drink prior to pregnancy, mm-hmm. during pregnancy, um, and then an extra one to two litres whilst breastfeeding. So say somebody usually drinks two litres a day before pregnancy, then three litres a day during pregnancy and yeah. three to four litres a day whilst breastfeeding. Okay, so almost double nearly. Yeah, that's right. Because you're losing so much, like you're literally losing um, a litre or two a day from breast milk. Yeah, well, and that probably doesn't take into account like heat um, and any sort of exercise. Like if you're breastfeeding and exercising and it's super hot and humid where you are as well, you probably again need a little bit more than that, don't you? Exactly. That's right. So um, yeah, just fluid is so important for so many reasons during pregnancy and breastfeeding. And it really makes such a big difference. Um, And I often say, I'm sure you've given this tip uh, before as well, Leanne, uh, that if you are struggling to drink enough water, just um, leaving some mint leaves or some cut up fruit uh, in water um, for a couple of hours or overnight or whatever, it really helps to uh, change 
both the flavour of the water but also kind of the viscosity of it to make it much easier to drink. So that's um, a, a common tip that I use. Mm, definitely. And also there's uh, like fluid in our food as well. So having things like smoothies and yogurts and more of those wet foods um, are really beneficial if you're, again, really struggling to get your water slash fluid intake up as well. I think people think that fluid or hydration just has to be water, but um, often we forget that our foods um, and other fluids can contain hydration as well. Mm, absolutely. Great tip. Now, I do have a question for you. Um, one of my good friends um, had two babies um, very close together and breastfed um, almost exclusively for nearly three years straight. Um, and she ended up having um, having to have some terrible root canals. And something her dentist said to her was, um, did you supplement with calcium? So I think I've, I've never really heard of that before. And um, she's she's actually a dietitian as well. And it's something that she just never um, really knew either. So is there some evidence in terms of taking calcium supplementation or increasing your dairy, um, I guess, serves a day while you're breastfeeding? Uh, no. So your calcium requirements don't uh, necessarily increase during breastfeeding, hmm. um, but you certainly do have to make sure that you are getting adequate amount Enough. yeah um and and so often i do see people going off dairy mm. people tend to associate dairy uh, with weight gain um which is actually not what the evidence shows at all mm. um so that may be part of the reason um another thing is that i see so many women avoiding dairy because they think that their baby has a cow's milk protein allergy mm-hmm. um just because the bub is crying a bit or something or you know grumpy um and as much as I hate to say it like babies do cry and I know I sound really heartless here but I have a little (laughs) one-year-old and let me tell you that uh they they do cry (laughs) that's what they're designed Um, to do (laughs) that's right and so we have to look for other um I guess ways of soothing our babies and Yes, cow's milk protein allergy is a legitimate thing, but it's not one of the first things that I would be going off mm-hmm. um, in an effort to stop your baby from crying. Mm, okay, great. Like you really need to have that tested by an accredited practicing dietitian. Wonderful. Well, good myth. You've you've convinced me that, that we don't so much need calcium supplementations, but it is important to be able to get some calcium in. And even if you're not having dairy, to find alternative sources of that um, to really support those um, nutrient requirements during breastfeeding. Yeah. Another thing that is actually really interesting that a lot of people don't know is that um, calcium deficiency during pregnancy increase, significantly increases your risk of preeclampsia, mm. which is a type of hypertension mm-hmm. um, that occurs during pregnancy. Um, and so like it's such an easy fix. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's really common. So it's another good reason to be making sure that you are getting adequate amount of calcium during pregnancy as well as during breastfeeding. Definitely. And I feel like social media has a lot to answer for as well, because there's a lot of, you know, so-called experts saying dairy's bad for you, dairy's inflammatory. And so, so many people are drinking like almond milk, for example. And when I tell my clients, I'm like, you do know almond milk's like 96% water, 4% almonds. Like there's really not much in it. But if that's something that you really do want to take, that's okay. But ensure it's appropriately um, you know, modified with some vitamins and that sort of thing. And the, the nutrient profile actually matches somewhat similar to milk. Like my alternate source, if people don't want to take cow's milk, is actually soy milk mm, because it's very similar to um, cow's milk. Um, so yeah, just be aware that something like almond milk isn't necessarily, although it's trendy on social media and a lot of the bloggers and influencers will use it in their recipes, it's not actually a good source of nutrition. You're basically just drinking water. Uh, <laughs> I absolutely second that, Leanne. And like, there are just uh, there's a lot more nutrition in cow's milk, um, and the research shows that it's not inflammatory. There was like there's quite 
strong evidence um, that's looked into that and cow's milk isn't inflammatory. So it's, that's not something that people need to be worrying about. Mm, and particularly in Australia as well, we honestly do have some of the best dairy in the world. And I do have comments from, you know, people living in America and other parts of the world who are worried about hormones and antibiotics and that sort of thing in the dairy. And I guess I can't speak because I don't live in those parts of the world, but I do know that Australia has very strict standards and regulations around hormones and antibiotics and that sort of thing in our dairy. And every single batch is tested and you can rest assured that it is some of the safest and, and top quality dairy in the world as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I know like, you know, you and I are both testimony to that. Uh, We are both cow's milk drinkers um, and haven't had problems with inflammation or weight or health. And this podcast is not sponsored by the dairy industry, FYI. No, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) Now, um, your advice around starting solids for babies. Um, So say we made it through the pregnancy stage, the the preconception stage, we did the breastfeeding thing, or we we got our infant into the sort of the six to 12 month mark, they're looking ready to start solids. What would your advice for um, new mums be or um, yeah, around starting solids and what some of the best um, foods to sort of start baby with? Um, so personally, I'm very pro what's called baby led weaning. Mm-hmm. Um, so rather than starting, so for example, with my little one, um, I did give her probably two weeks of puree food um, just to test how she went. And after that, we were on full solids. Um, and she, everyone now says to me, they're like, oh, she's such a good eater. Um, and, and she is, she's a great eater. Um, and the research actually shows that babies who get onto solids at an earlier age and do baby led weaning, um, they're, uh, it really gives them the autonomy to be able to choose their foods. They tend to be a lot less fussy. Um, and I like to think of eating time as almost like a playtime, like, um, you know, she gets the opportunity to feel and experiment with all of those different textures and you mash up banana in her fingers and uh, she tries to feed herself her porridge, which, yes, ends up everywhere. <laughs> but, um, you know, she's getting better and better at doing it herself and, and the sooner you start trying, the sooner you develop these skills essentially. Mm. Wonderful. And any, uh, I guess, particular foods that you um, would focus on in terms of like purees or solids or that sort of thing? Obviously, there's a lot of probably pressure that mums feel to make their own food from scratch in their fancy thermomix or something like that. Mm. But do you feel like it is okay to buy, you know, like the iron fortified rice cereal to start with or, you know, some of the um, baby foods from the shop are okay if you're a working mum and you just don't have time to make everything from scratch for, for yourself? Are those options still still good options? Because I know there's a lot yeah. of bum guilt when it does come to you know feeding your baby everyone wants to do organic and make it yourself and that sort of thing but the reality is that a lot of mums are back to work sometimes within the six month mark and might not be able to yeah so um I uh, as a dietitian I run my own business and when you run your own business there is no uh, maternity leave I've worked the whole way through um but one of the things that I really advocate for is eating with your baby. You don't need to make separate meals for your baby. Um, and we, again, have done that the whole way through. And I remember talking to one of the other mums from that we, from our mother's group, and she's like, oh, I'm putting off starting my baby on solids. This was her second baby. 
um, because it was so much work first time around making all of these little purees and organizing them and freezing them. And I was like, what? I didn't do it. I haven't done any of that. Like literally whatever I'm eating for breakfast is what she eats for breakfast. Whatever I'm eating for lunch is what she eats for lunch um, and so forth. Um, from four months, like we have done that right from the start. And uh, like I said, she's a great eater. Um, and so yeah, like I guess the exceptions were that with um, grapes and tomatoes, I always cut them in half. Um, I haven't given her any hard nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's pretty much the only exceptions. Like right from uh, five months old, she would have been eating things like, well, not that I eat chops very often, but if I was eating chops, she'd have chops, um, carrot, Brussels sprouts, fish um a sandwich like yeah just whatever I'm having is what she has and if anything it's actually improved my diet a little bit more um in that I wasn't always good at stopping to take a break at morning tea time and afternoon tea time whereas Mm -hmm. now I do (laughs) I don't just grab an apple on the run like I we actually sit down and Mm -hmm. um because babies model what you do so much uh, it's absolutely incredible how much they model you and so um that's really important as well so eating together it just saves you so much time it's better for bub and it gives you the opportunity to model so i highly recommend it wonderful and then my last question for you melanie um is really around label reading and i remember quite a few years ago there was a brand which i can't remember but i probably shouldn't say on this podcast anyway where they actually got um fined quite a large amount for promoting a a food towards i think it was like toddlers and younger children that was like made with um you know, real fruit or something. It was some sort of fruit bar. It was essentially like a fancy roll up. And they got done for basically saying that it had real fruit in it. And I think at the end of the day, it was like 3% blueberries or like 4% apricot. And that was it. The rest of it was basically sugar and other artificial sort of ingredients. Mm. So when it comes to mums and, you know, younger children might be going to prep or kindy or that sort of thing and looking to put some Obviously, like we can't make everything from scratch. If you can and you're a mum, that's wonderful. Mm. But I understand the pressures of modern society and most mums work and they just don't have time to spend a weekend baking in the kitchen. So choosing some packet foods is the reality. Yes. Um, what do you recommend in terms of label reading for children? Because marketing is very sneaky. Like a lot of mums will grab the first box that says, you know, real food or, um, you know, superfood on it. But I know myself reading adults just for my own, um, you know, snack options. It's often not the case. And even though it says made with real fruit, again, it might be like 3% apple or something like that. So yeah. any tips for mums when it comes to label reading and choosing a healthier sort of packaged product for their young children? Yeah, so um, I always think it's really important to be reading the ingredients list to see what actual ingredients are in the food. And um, in Australia, again, we're really blessed because the ingredients have to be listed in order from the greatest quantity to the least quantity. Mm -hmm. So um, if if, um, an ingredient is kind of in the top three, you sort of know that it's going to be a fair decent amount of um, of the food that you're eating so that's where in the top three you really want to be avoiding things like salt and sugar particularly for little ones um, and we also want to be trying to where possible avoid preservatives and additives for little ones as well so I always encourage um, trying to again have whole foods for our little ones as much as possible um, so I know when we go out 
Um, I will take things like uh, some rusks, which aren't a, a whole food, but I find they work really well. Um, those little baby cucumbers are great. Um, an apple, mm-hmm. uh, some sultanas are fantastic just to keep in my bag um, to be able to have a snack when you're out and about. Um, so fruits work really well. Um, but, yeah, I guess the key things for looking at, at labels are really going to be looking looking out for those sugars uh, and salt, which we want to be avoiding for little ones. Mm, and the sneaky little um, other names for sugars as well. Like a lot of people forget that honey is still a sugar. Glucose is a sugar. Um, rice malt syrup is a sugar. Those sort of things. Maple syrup is still a sugar. And I think a lot of people think that maybe they're a healthier alternative, but in, in reality, our body still sort of recognize that and treats that as sugar as well. Oh, absolutely. Um basically anything ending in o's is a sugar and yeah. <laughs> um, and just because something has an alternative or an artificial sweetener in lieu of sugar it doesn't necessarily make it a healthier product so again i'd just be trying to get back to those whole foods as much as possible um a common question that i'm often asked is around the use of artificial sweeteners during pregnancy and for little ones mm-hmm. um and look uh, granted the evidence isn't super clear but there's enough that um, I have a fairly strong opinion that yes we can't get rid of all of it out of our diet but where possible keep it low um, because there there is some suggestions some research that shows that the more sweeteners that we have during pregnancy um, in terms of artificial sweeteners the greater um risk of metabolic conditions our little ones will have down the track interesting yeah Yeah. and is that sort of broadly all types of artificial sweeteners I know sometimes I tend to recommend clients um I guess more than natural types of ones like stevia I say they're okay in small amounts try to avoid other um you know like the xylitol erythritol those sort of ones but is that sort of broadly all artificial sweeteners you'd recommend just really reducing yeah because also the more sweetness we have um, and we have to remember that our babies can actually start tasting the food that we eat from about five months of gestation wow and so yeah it has a really big impact um when if you're having um foods with that are that are particularly sweet Mm. all of the time Mm -hmm. so what you eat during pregnancy as well has a has a really big role um so like i said you know you're obviously not going to be able to get rid of it completely out of your diet you don't have to have a perfect diet um but just trying to limit those those artificial sweeteners as much as possible. Wonderful. Thank you, Melanie. You've been such a wealth of knowledge on this podcast. You've you've taught me so much, even just with this hour we've been chatting. And then lastly, I'd love for you to tell our listeners a little bit more about some of the wonderful online programs that you offer um, and some services as well, because I know that you do some online consultations. So where can people get in touch with you um, and maybe book in for or start one of your online programs or book a consultation with you? Thanks so much, Leanne. Um, Yeah, I do have um, some online programs. Probably the best place to start, though, is to check out my YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. It's called Nourish with Melanie. Um, And with that, um, I also have um, a free uh, fertility meal plan, pregnancy meal plan, and um, and new mums meal plan. So to get access to them, uh, the fertility one is just www.melaniemcgrice.com slash fertility. The pregnancy one is slash pregnancy um, and then the other one is slash breastfeeding. Um, So, and you can grab them all off my website as well, but uh, check out the YouTube channel, download one of those free meal plans um, and then that will give you access 
uh, to my email list and you'll be able to find out a little bit more about the online programs from there. Wonderful. Sounds great. And on social media, um, what are your handles on Instagram and Facebook? Yeah. So um, on Instagram, it's at Melanie McGrice. On Facebook, it's at Melanie McGrice Dietitian. Um, And I'm always happy to take comments as well on whether it's through my website or socials or YouTube. Um, So feel free to reach out. Uh, I'm more than happy to help in any way that I can. Um, Yeah, I just, I really want people to start getting help and advice for these types of things. And as you said, I do do online um, consultations as well, but I actually train other dietitians in nutrition for fertility and pregnancy and new mums and so um, they can actually access all of our dietitians as well so see anybody who appeals to you um, or who might be close to you um, or book somebody online but yeah I just really would encourage you to to optimize the health of your future baby wonderful love it and I couldn't um, highly recommend your YouTube channel enough for our listeners it is wonderful I've been on there many times just to sort of check up on the latest research if somebody asked me a question because it's definitely not my area of expertise and your YouTube has really great simple videos with the latest evidence that are quick like three five minute watches as well and really concise answers so I definitely highly recommend uh, your YouTube channel and your other socials and I'll make sure that I link those in the show notes as well so our listeners can find them easily thanks so much Leanne and thank you for having me no thank you so much it's been a pleasure. And we'll catch you listeners in the very next episode.